Jeremiah chapter 48 is where I want you to be. And uh, I love that song. I love the video because it shows exactly what we're digging into. Very often in life, we look at something and we think this is the worst thing that could ever happen. You know what? God looks at you and says, oh, no, this is one of the best things that's ever happened. And I'm going to take a, a time in your life that you may not see how beautiful it can be because it's difficult, because maybe you failed, because you misstepped or, or, or you did something you know you shouldn't. I'm going to take that and I'm going to wrap my will around it and I'm going to just do something incredible with it. And that's what we're talking about during this series is how do we see God do this? And, and I want to teach you more and more and more uh, about a God who loves you so much that he intimately wants to be involved in your life. He just wants to care. And, and I think sometimes we've got to grab hold of that and see it. Uh, I don't know if you heard about the woman one time that just couldn't see the, the, the blessing that happened to her because she was walking along the beach after just feeling like her life wasn't going the way it wanted. All her dreams were literally up in smoke kind of a thing. And she comes across a, a lamp on, on the beach and she picks it up and rubs it and out pops the genie. And uh, she's looking at the genie and he says, okay, you get three wishes. And she goes, yes. He goes, but there's a catch. Your ex-husband gets double whatever you want. She's like, that's not fair. He goes, I'm a genie. There's always a catch. So before she thinks, she goes, okay, I want $4 million. Pow, she is sitting in a bank. A guy's across the desk. He looks at her. He says, here's your a new account with $4 million in it. And she's about to scream for joy when she hears a loud scream from a familiar voice over here. And it's her husband jumping up and down going, $8 million, $8 million. And she just can't stand it. It doesn't matter she has four. It just kills her that he has eight. And so she thinks, oh, and she walks outside and she tries to put it out of her head. And the genie appears, goes, what's your second wish? She said, you know what? I've always wanted to live on the ocean, but quick, quick, hold on. I want a beautiful mansion that overlooks the ocean. I want to have huge glass. I don't want to have to pay any taxes. I want it just to be uh, the house to work, nothing. And boom, all of a sudden she's standing there in this gorgeous, huge, like 3,000 square foot house, glass that overlooks the ocean. She walks out on her patio looking down. It's just incredible. And she's thinking nothing could be better than and then she hears a loud scream, and she looks across the cliff and sees a house twice as large as hers, and her husband's jumping up and down, her ex-husband screaming and yelling, not knowing how this has happened, and, and, and she's, oh, and now she can't stand where she is. The genie appears and said, I warned you. He said, I'm giving your husband double everything that I give you. She said, okay, I want to be pregnant with twins. <laughs> What I'm about to share with you is a study, and I want to be tell you this, that I was sitting listening to Pastor Chuck Smith teach, and it just, I couldn't get enough of it. And I want to give credit to him, because as he taught on this particular verse that's here in 48, verse 11, I would not have got it. I wouldn't have grabbed hold of how powerful this is, how life-changing this is, because what I want you to grab is God is intimately involved in our lives, and sometimes we don't understand all that he's doing. George Barna found something out, though. Are you ready for this? George Barna, Barna found that 10% of, of people who attend church regularly, now grab this, 10% of people who attend church regularly really seek God and his will in making major life decisions. 
90% of people don't go to God and say, God, what's your will? God, what should I do? The vast majority of times, Barna found out something that scares us to death is that we tend to go do something and then pray that God would bless it versus asking God, what is your will? And God warns about over and over and over again that we need to seek him first and we need to ask him first and we need to trust him first. Isaiah chapter 30 verses 1 and 2 says this. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. Who execute a plan, but not mine. And make an alliance, but not of my spirit. In order to add sin to sin. Who proceed to go down to Egypt without consulting me. Now, what is he saying there? God says, you know what? If you run out and make a plan and it's not my plan, then you're in sin no matter how good you think it is. And then every time you go to execute that plan more and even say, God, bless it, you're adding sin to sin to sin on top of this because God does have a will for your life. He does have a plan for you. He does care about you and he wants to be very involved in it. See, Moab had that problem. The Moabites were just going off and living life on their own and living it to an extreme. And they felt like that they were in good shape. Their economy was thriving. Everything looked good to them. And, and the Jewish people are looking and saying, God, do you love us? And, and, and if you love us, why is life so hard for us and so easy for Moab? And I want to have you catch some principles that flow out of here. Start actually in verse 10. It says this. Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently, and cursed be the one who restrains his sword from blood. Now, now, what he was getting at there is he says, when you do my work, you need to do it with diligence. When you follow me, it has to have, now don't miss this, intentionality to it, and passion. When you just go, oh, okay, I'm a Christian, that's not okay. Well, you know what, you know, I'll kind of serve God sometimes and he has a part of my life, that's not okay with God. God says, if you're going to follow me, it needs to be an all-out, sold-out commitment where you say, God, here I am, and you throw yourself into it, and you don't hold back. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 12 says this, and he's talking about the last days. He said, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. God says, when I return, I am going to hunt down don't miss who, complacent people. People who even say there is a God, but you know what? He's not really doing anything in my life. And, and he's never going to, to chastise me. Uh, and, and God says, I'm hunting for people who don't understand me better than that. And they don't live their life with more passion. And then God says, I want to tell you something. Now, now catch this. Look at verse 11, because I think that you're not going to grab the power of it in a minute. He's talking about the curse of Moab. Now notice the curse. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has also been undisturbed like wine on its dregs. And he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed. Are you ready for this? God says, do you know why? Or do you know how I love you? Do you know the proof of it? It's because I disturb your life. Do you know the proof of it? It's because I don't let you have the easy life. He goes, I hate Moab. So you know what I've done? Nothing. I just let him go on. I let him have an easy life. And we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Does that make sense? You see, we all tend to choose the easy way. We love the easy way. All of you who are college students, you know, you're walking up and you see someone who's just taken the final exam ahead of you. And you walk over and go, how was the exam? And they go, man, it was hard. And you're like, oh, no. You know, if they go, oh, no, it was easy. You're like, yeah, because you want the easy test, right? 
Uh, the reality is, is we do that all the time. Uh, we want the easy way. But think about this. When you see a football game and you're a football fan and it's a blowout, it becomes boring. Uh, when you watch a, a sporting event and it, there's no competition there, we look at that and say, well, that, that's not good. And, and think about this. Heroic moments are never found when you're sitting on a lounger. You know, we don't walk up to somebody and say, oh my gosh, you're the best person sitting on a lounger I've ever seen. That's my dream. No, we don't give medals for that. We don't get excited about that. The heroic moments are found when it's most difficult and when the opposition is the strongest and life isn't the easiest. There's a danger in easiness. As a matter of fact, Soren Kierkegaard said something I think you'll find interesting. He said boredom is the root of all evil. Because the easy life's the boring life, and boredom is the root of all evil. Because, according to Kierkegaard, it means if we're in an easy life, we're refusing to be who God made us to be. And if you're bored, one thing is for sure. Get ready for this. According to Kierkegaard, if you're bored, one thing is for sure. You're not walking in the footsteps of Jesus. The boring, easy life is a sign we're not close to God. Think about this. Lack of exercise. What does that do? It makes you flabby, and it makes you tired. Sitting on your couch all day long actually makes you more tired and more depressed and more verge of despair. But when you get out and you work that body and you exercise, it gets firm and toned and strong and you have more energy than ever. And I know some of you are sitting there writing on your notes, Chuck, you need to practice what you preach. But, uh, but isn't that true? And how about this? Lack of work. Lack of work is a sign of leading to depression. Uh, it's interesting that in the Garden of Eden before the fall, before mankind fell before the eyes of God, what did God do? God gave jobs to Adam. And in a perfect, ideal, God-given life, there are things for you to do, challenges for you to take on. In 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah was so depressed, he actually cried out, God, kill me now. I don't want to live. God had him eat, sleep, and then God gave him a job. He gave him a mission. Because the easy life, the life that doesn't have a challenge, the life that doesn't cause you to get out, gets you in trouble. You know, it's interesting that I remember when I, I was living in Florida with my family and I was younger, we had kind of this frost hit and I looked out at this tree that was outside and I got really concerned. I don't know why I was concerned about this little tree. It was kind of just real young. And I said, Dad, there's so much frost on it and, and it's going to kill it. And my dad says, no, Chuck, that's the best thing for it. Because right now, while it's little and that frost begins to hit, it's forcing its roots to go deeper. And they have to go down deeper to stay warm. They have to go down deeper to get more nourishment. And that's going to make that tree stronger in the end. You know, when a little tree uh, is, is born and the wind begins to blow, it forces it down. And when a bigger wind comes, it forces it down. But the tree that's never had any stress, its roots stay towards the top of the ground. And when the time of test comes, it knocks it over. Uh, uh, when somebody has an easy life, that's what happened to them. How about this? Parents who are overprotective ruin their children. We know that's true. And we see it all the time. Uh, uh, people who don't want things to be too hard for their kids. They don't want them to have to face a challenge. The kind of mom who runs up and says, don't you dare discipline my little Johnny like that. Now, I need to tell you that's a, a, a something that never happened in my life. Whenever I got in trouble at school and I got home and my dad found out, I got spanked again. And, uh, you know, he was never ever that way. He was like, you need to get, you know. And, and the whole idea was he didn't want to be overprotective to me and he wanted me to handle things. And the reality is, is that a, a child who's overprotected uh, uh, ends up being weak. 
They end up being whiners. They end up being complainers. They end up being people who don't know how to face the challenges of life. They can't cope. As a matter of fact, it's been found that very often children not even raised in alcoholic homes, but raised with overprotected parents, do have a higher tendency to turn to alcohol and drugs because they can't handle life. And, And you have a heavenly father who doesn't want to have you live that way. He says, God says, you know what, if I I hated you, then I would let you have an easy life, so you'd be a mess. But I love you too much for that. I care about you too much for that. God uses trials and tribulations to strengthen us. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let your endurance have its perfect result so you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God loves you and he shows his love for you when he allows you to go through tough times and maybe, don't miss this, he might even plan for it. He might even want it to happen. Uh, Last spring, we studied on the life of Joseph. God loved Joseph with all his heart. So what did God do? He took him from an overprotective family where he was babied and he had him thrown in literally a slave situation. And then once he had learned some lessons from there, he was thrown into prison and he learned lessons there. And the whole time, it would have been so tempting for Joseph to say, God, how could this be? God, do you love me? And God goes, I love you so much, I let you be sold into slavery. You go, what kind of love is that? I had you put into a prison after that. You're like, wait a minute, God. Slavery was bad enough. Prison's worse. But when he was in slavery, he learned how to manage things. And he learned the customs of the Egyptians. And when he was in prison, he got into contact with some of the highest officials of all. Because just like in our day and time, and back in that day and time, government officials ought to be in prison. And... uh, uh, And so what happens, he met them there and he also learned more managerial skills. And being in prison was what opened the door for the greatest promotion of all to be the number two man of all of Egypt. Had he never been in prison, not only would he have not learned, he would not have had the associations. That was God's plan. What he thought was his bad break was his big break. And when we're in the hands of God, that happens constantly. But it might not seem that way in the moment. Listen to Psalm 105, verse 16. It's talking about Joseph and and the children of Israel. It says, God called for a famine in the land. He broke the whole staff of bread, but he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word, God's word, came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. One of the most loved men in all of scripture, Joseph, we look at and see God's loving hand. God planned to send him into slavery. God planned for him to be in prison. God planned. Why? To toughen him up, to make him stronger, and to put him in a place where he could be able to rise up. As a matter of fact, that passage in verse 20 goes on to say, the king sent and released him. The rulers of the people set him free. He, the king, made him lord of his house and the ruler of all his possessions to imprison his princes at his will. Now listen to this last line. And that he might teach the elders wisdom. Now Joseph was very young when he came out of prison, but you know what? It says that one of the callings in his life was to teach the elders wisdom. Where did Joseph get that wisdom? He got it in the school of hard knocks. God loves that school. Some of you right now are working on your diploma in that school. And you know what? That's a sign that God loves you. I mean, it really is. And you need to actually have that perspective that says, God, this is an amazing thing. 
Uh, in 2 Samuel, I'm going to refer to this over and over. In 2 Samuel 23, there's the story of David's mighty men. And what you see is every mighty man had a mighty battle to fight is how he became a mighty man. No one would just was, said you're a mighty man unless he fought a mighty battle. Well, there's one man named Benaniah. And Benaniah had to fight two men and two of the greatest warriors of his day, they were two on one, and he had to fight them. And by defeating them, he was declared a mighty man. He had to fight an Egyptian seven and a half feet tall. He didn't even have a weapon. And he went into battle and took the spear from the Egyptian and killed him with his own spear. But how about this? This is a, a book I want to recommend. And, and it says that Benaniah was in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. Now, I want you to think about that. There's a book. I, I want to recommend it highly. It's called In the Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Do you think that if you fell into a pit with a lion, being in a pit would be bad, don't you think? And then when a lion's down there and it's snowing so you can't get out, doesn't that sound like the worst thing that could ever happen to you? I mean, nobody likes to be in the pits, and we certainly don't like to be where we're with lions. You might think that's the worst thing that could ever happen. But are you ready for this? When he was in that position and he ended up striking the lion, fighting and killing it, that caused him to be promoted to be the chief of the army. What he thought was his bad break turned out to his big break because he became so renowned that it caused his promotion to come. Do you grab this? Sometimes God wants you in the pit with a lion on a snowy day. You say, God, it's cold. And God goes, I know. Oh my gosh, Lord, I fell into a pit. And God goes, look around, it's getting worse. You're like, how could this be good? God goes, because I'm preparing you for something. And I hate Moab, so I don't do anything to help them. But I love you. Now, now, I want you to listen to this. This comes from the book, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Uh, uh, Mark Batterson says this. Whenever I counsel someone who is wrestling with discerning the will of God. Now, this whole study we're all doing for months is on the will of God. Whenever I counsel someone who is wrestling with discerning the will of God, I remind them of a simple truth. God wants to get you where God wants you to go more than you want to get where God wants you to go. Now, that, that could cause your head to spin. God wants to get you where he wants you to go more than you want to go where God wants you to go. Did you grab that? It says, if you, he goes, it ought to relieve this. Uh, it says, if you keep in step with the spirit of God, where God is going, he's going to make sure that you get where he wants you to go. He's always working behind the scenes, engineering our circumstances, and setting us up for success. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. He goes, but right from the outset, let me share one more of my core convictions. God is in the business of strategically positioning us in the right place at the right time. A sense of destiny is our birthright as followers of Christ. God is awfully good at getting us where he wants us to go. But here's the catch. The right place often seems like the wrong place. And the right time often seems like the wrong time. Now I want you to think about that. Being in a pit with a lion on a snowy day was the right place for Ben and I to be. It didn't seem like it in the moment. Being in slavery was the right place for Joseph to be. It didn't seem like it in the moment. Uh, being in prison now and, and unfairly accused was the right place for Joseph to be. It didn't seem like in the moment. But God literally said, I orchestrated every one of these things on purpose to create your sense of destiny and a fulfillment that's amazing. And then God says this, but Moab, I don't do any of that for. I let them get easy. I let them get fat. I let them feel like life is comfortable. He goes, but you know what? No, no, don't miss this. God's saying to you and me, I'm more interested when I love you in your character than your comfort. 
So right now, if you're in the school of hard knocks, and I've got a feeling a lot of you are, then what we need to do is say, God, I thank you for this. I praise you for it. I love you for it. Uh, Pam and I, I really believe, have a great marriage. But I want you to know where the, the birth of the great marriage came. It came in a very tough time. When we got married, we didn't have any money. We lived in an apartment in San Bernardino, California, and I am not kidding about this. It was, it was a dilapidated, crummy apartment always filled with ants. I can't tell you the number of times we woke up with ants all over us. And we'd ask the apartment manager, and he laughed. Oh, and the, yeah, it just happens around. I'm like, what? And, and I remember one night, we didn't even have the money to go buy ant spray. Well, it didn't do any good anyway. I think it just made them stronger. Um, <laughs> on one side of us lived a couple who were so abusive to each other. He had a baseball bat one night. She had a frying pan, and they fought it out as we listened. On the other side of us was a prostitute. And I mean, she worked from home. Do you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and, and, and I'm not trying to be demeaning, but you gotta be, I just blew me away. Number one, I found out she's a prostitute. Her pimp was a, a big, big black guy who drove a red Cadillac and he wore a furry, furry hat with a feather in it. And I'm like, am I trapped in the 70s? You know, and, uh, and, and we would live in between that with the ants pouring all over us. And you know, I gotta be honest, that made our lives better than you can know. We, we found out what love, unconditional love was. We found out what it meant to laugh in the tough times. It was the birth of an incredible, incredible marriage. And God on purpose used that time to mold us. I, I want to say this. Some of you won't agree. But I, I get concerned about couples who start out with everything. I get concerned about couples who already have the home and they already both have the nice cars and they already have the nice jobs. Most of us say, oh, that's the beginning of a great marriage. Well, I want to tell you over the years, I've seen good marriages come from that, but I haven't seen that be the reason for a good marriage. I want you to think about that. See, I think very often we as parents want our kids to start out with everything, but what they really need is sometimes very little or nothing. And by the way, God knows that. God knows that we need to have times of testing. We need times to understand. We need times to jump in. We need times to understand 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 that says, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I have nothing, I found I have everything. And, and God says, I love you enough to allow these things to, to cause you to grow and to cause your character to strengthen. And he says, but if I didn't love you, I'd let you have the easy life. Uh, it says that, that back in chapter 48, verse 11, Moaz has been at ease since his youth. Now notice this. He has been undisturbed like wine on its dregs or its lees. He's been settled in it. He hasn't been poured from vessel to vessel. Now in winemaking skill, what happens is they would take wine and, and they, would, they would do the process on it and they would let it set for a period of time. And then back then what they would do is after a, at the right moment, the winemaker would take and pour it into the next vessel and it would stir it up. And then as the dregs rose up, they would very often take them off because if they leave it settled on it, it would create bitterness. And then later on, they would pour it again. And by taking that kind of a process of knowing the right moment to pour and disturb it and get it going, it creates an oxygen in there that made the best possible wine. But wine that just sat there would begin to putrefy. It would begin to stink. It, it, leaving it undisturbed would not make a great wine. And God says, that's what I've done to Moab. I've left them undisturbed. No trials have come in their life. No tough things have headed their way. I don't know if you ever used to watch the old Twilight Zones show. 
But my favorite, favorite Twilight Zone show is about this man. And what happens is he's died and he's brought into this beautiful apartment. And he's standing there and, and, and the person standing with him says, welcome. And he goes, wow, this is gorgeous. And he says, it's better than that. Anything you want, you can have. So he was kind of hungry, so he wished for his favorite meal, and there it was right before him. And he sat down, and it never tasted better. And then he wished for this particular uh, cigar, because, you know, and he got it. It was perfect. Then uh, being who he was, he wished for a beautiful woman, and she appeared. And then another one, and she appeared, and, and he starts wishing for everything. Well, later on, the person who brought him there came back, and he's sitting there, and he's just depressed. And he looks up at this person who had brought him there, and he said, I just never knew that heaven would be so boring. And then the, the person gives this maniacal laugh and says, why do you think you're in heaven? It was hell. Now think about it. Some of us go, well, I'd like to try that. But, you know, five, ten you know, hours in, all of a sudden there's no challenge. There's no excitement. And, and getting everything you want might be the greatest curse of all. C.S. Lewis said very often that when God wants to curse men, what does he do? He answers our prayers. And we need to understand that God says, I don't want you to be that way. And we get that way. You know, maybe we have that new car and a good job and the kids are back in school. And so you look at your wife and you say, honey, let's, let's head to Vegas for the weekend. And you'll get the nice room in Vegas and you eat at the buffet. And, and you lay back and you say, you know what? Let's take a cruise in the spring. And, and you're laying there on the bed in this neat hotel room thinking, man, this is the life. And God looks at you and says, no, your life stinks. You don't know that he's saying that, but you find out because when you get back, what happens is you have a, a phone message from your boss and you call him. He says, I need to see you right away in the morning. And you come walking in and he goes, I've got bad news. We're downsizing and we're laying you off. And you're like, what? I just bought that new car. I, how am I going to afford my mortgage? Oh my God. And you walk outside and you'll go, oh God. And God goes, oh, now you're talking to me. Haven't heard from you in a while. It's good that you, so we're around now. And God help me. Go, oh, this is getting better. You know what happens is the life that's rotten leaves God out. And very often, God will disturb us a little. And, and he'll make sure that, that, that your life has enough in it. So now your prayer life improves. Your calling out to God improves. And he wants to help you. He doesn't want to leave you settled on your dregs. He doesn't want to leave you at ease. See what it says again. This is Moab who he doesn't like. Verse 11, Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has been undisturbed like wine on its dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel. He hasn't even gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed, meaning he's beginning to smell. He's beginning to stink. And God says, I hate that in you. You see, God is like a physical therapist. I don't know if you've ever had an injury where you needed a physical therapist. But you're laying there and maybe it's your leg and the physical therapist comes in. He says, I'm going to get you back in shape. Now, do you know what that means? It means he's going to work with you and on you. It means he's going to stress out your leg at different times. It means he's going to do things very often that create pain. And he's going to grab it and twist it. And you're going to, oh, that hurts. He goes, good, good, hold it there for a second. And it just begins to throb a little. Not too much, just enough. So that all of a sudden this leg that doesn't want to stretch to that place now begins to stretch again. And if he didn't do that for you, your leg would never have the flexibility, never have the strength. And God looks at you and says, I'm going to do that in all areas of your life. I'm going to grab hold of you, and I'm going to put you in some stress, and I'm going to give you some things. And you go, whoa, wait a minute, God. 
Again, from the book, in, a, from the, in the pit of a lion on a snowy day, he says this. This may sound somewhat sadistic, but follow the logic. It's our past problems that prepare us for our future opportunities. So someday we may be as grateful for the bad things as the good things because the bad things help prepare us for the good things. At face value, landing in a pit with a lion on a snowy day is a massive problem. In fact, for most of us, it would be our last problem we ever have. But sometimes the biggest problems present the greatest opportunities for God to reveal his glory and work his purposes. No one likes being in pits or put out to pasture, but maybe God is developing character and honing skills that will serve you later in life. See, God sees the big picture. And God very often grabs hold of us. And you know what Paul the Apostle says? He goes, that ought to make us rejoice. Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says, Not only this, but we exult, we praise, we cheer, we scream with joy. Ready for this? We also exult in our tribulations. Now think about that. That's what a, a real believer does, a real follower of God does, and a person in an intimate relationship. We exalt in our tribulations uh, because they bring about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, you know what marks us is that we rejoice in those things. And by the way, God says, I don't do this to hurt you. Remember Jeremiah 29, 11, our theme verse? God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil to give you a future and hope. And so when his plan was to put Joseph in prison, it was to put him in a position of power later that was so amazing, it was incredible. At the moment, he didn't get it, but he was preparing him for his future, his destiny, his hope. When Ben and I falls in the pit and the lion's snarling at him, he's the blood, you know, adrenaline's going, and he's ready to go into this incredible battle. He has no idea that would lead to his being one of the greatest generals that ever led an army in a day because of that moment. And when all of a sudden you got laid off from your job, and I'm not trying to make this sound anything easy. If you haven't caught it, I know the difficulty that some of you are facing right now in an economy that's floundering. And jobs that are just going away and, and not able to see how to make the next move. Guess what? God says, now I've got you in a place where I can prepare you for amazing things. And not that we have to say that we're happy about the circumstance, but we can exalt in God and say, God, you've got your hand upon me. You really do. You're doing something that's beyond what I can understand. You see, God very often has to unsettle us. Why? Because we become settled so quickly. Entry peace sets in. Our prayer life becomes dull. Getting in the word becomes boring. When God unsettles us, then it causes an amazing uh, invigoration in our life. And, and the Holy Spirit moves in a way we can't imagine. God may have to unsettle us because he has something better for you. You ready for that? God might have to unsettle you because he has something better for you. Uh, uh, a while back, I was talking with a college girl who had remembered this study. And what happened is she had these three amazing roommates... And all of a sudden, she just kept thinking, I love my roommates. I've never enjoyed being with people more. It feels like I'm always just fellowshipping with Christians. And then one roommate got a job transfer and she had to leave. So now they're thinking, oh, we got to bring in the right. And then another roommate, her parents had a problem. She had to go be with them. And now there's two left and they can't afford the place. And they're thinking, oh, this has been so fun. And then all of a sudden they said, you know what? We can't afford this anymore. And they're like, God, why? Why? We were having such an incredible time and it was a wonderful place to live. And we loved our apartment. And now they had to move. 
And they had to get a smaller apartment and a cheaper one. And they missed their two friends. And no lies, this really happened. A month later, uh, two guys moved next door. And one of them was like, ah, hot. (laughs) And they end up meeting. and, And the reason she ran to tell me of this is she was showing me her engagement ring. Now, do you think she's sorry she moved now? No. Matter of fact, it's going to be an expensive wedding. Her parents might be. But, uh, you know, sometimes God's got to get our attention. Uh, sometimes he's got to grab a hold of us. There was a farmer one time who uh, uh, heard about his neighbor who was brand new and didn't know anything about farming. And the guy had hooked up the mule to the wagon and he couldn't get the mule to, to pull the wagon. And so he, he was frustrated. Well, the farmer came over to his house and said, what's wrong? He goes, that stupid mule just won't pull the wagon. And the farmer said, oh, I'll fix it. And what he did is he went over by the shed, got a two-by-four, walked out, and hit the mule right between the eyes. The mule jumped. When the farmer got in, it went wherever he wanted. Now, you might think that's cruel, but mules are hard-headed. They can take it. Um, I don't want to be uh, uh, cruel, but let me ask the question. Are any of you in here need to be hit by a two-by-four? Does God need to pop some of you to get your... How about this? Psalm 32. We read it before. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as a horse or a mule that have no understanding. You know, sometimes we're drag kicking and screaming. And God goes, but I have this for you. And you're like, I don't want it. I don't. Oh, wow. That's awesome. You know, and, and God has to unsettle you to get you there. And you know what? God would prefer for you and I to literally allow him to take us to that place daily by spending time daily. But entropy sets in and and we become flabby and God wants to strengthen us. That's his great idea. Now, by the way, God may unsettle you to stop you from things that are wrong or not the best for you. Listen to another quote from in the pit with the lion on a snowy day. It says this, we pray for no pain when the result would be no gain. We pray that God will keep us out of pits and away from lions. But if God answered our prayer, it would rob us of our greatest opportunities. Many of our prayers would short-circuit God's plans and purpose for our life if he answered them. Maybe, maybe we should stop asking God to get us out of our difficult circumstances and start asking God what we should get out of our difficult circumstances. Now, I think that's wise. And we need to understand that God might be unsettling us because he's keeping us from something that in the end would be harmful to us or not as good. And we've got to grab it. The bottom line is we need to thank the Lord and know that he is working. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Did you catch this? He goes, Moab, I don't like them. So I let them be at ease constantly and they have an aroma that becomes putrid. He says, but you, you, I will lead in triumph. And by the way, the only way you can be in triumph is you have to fight a battle and win. You, I will lead to victory. And the aroma of your life will be incredible and sweet smelling and amazing. And we need to trust God in that. We need to thank, thank you, God, for the opportunity. And when all of a sudden what we thought was a horrible moment happens, we need to look for a better one. We need to be like the little boy who was building a sailboat and he couldn't wait to go sail it. And he got down by the water and he set it out there and a huge wind came and capsized his boat and it sunk. And he stood up and said, oh, what a great day to fly a kite. You see, that's what we need to do. We need to change the perspective and get going and and have that kind of interesting life that is so exciting and so thrilling where God moves in amazing ways. God loves you. 
And one of the greatest signs of his love is that he will work to mold your character and create a life in you that's incredible. And we need to allow that to happen. We don't want to get upset. We don't want to lose perspective. We don't want to take our eye on what God's doing. We want to be the people who rejoice knowing in the end we always triumph. And we need to exalt in those things that can make us stronger and better. I uh, want you to know that this to me is one of the most meaningful passages in the Bible because over and over again God has shown me this in my life. I love challenges now more than ever. I can't tell you how my attitude's always what it should be, but I can tell you that I'm learning more and more how to let it be what it should be. But I can tell you this too, is that God very often wants to take us and shake us up. He wants to move us. He wants to create something that happens. Uh, uh, a year and a half ago, actually two years ago, uh, right at this time, I thought that life could not be better. I was in a church where I was loved, I was with people on staff that I loved. I had raised most of them up. And to be honest, we were starting to talk about how to do things to make our life comfortable for years. And, and the church was brainstorming that with me on a retirement account that would take care of Pam and I and medical to take care of us. And I got to be honest, I literally remember a moment about two years ago where I went and sat in a chair thinking, wow, now it's going to be easy. And God said, oh, no. No, 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 no. And, and he took me and brought me here. And I've had the greatest year and a half of my life. I have had the greatest year and a half of my life. This has been the best ever. And I want to say, it's not, it's not a trial any longer, so I don't know what God's getting ready to do next to me. But I love the church I came from, and they're like family. But I want to say this with all honesty. I could not love you more. And as good as I thought that was, this is better. And, and did you see last week when 29 people came and gave their lives to Christ? I, uh, and God the whole time was saying, Chuck, your prayer life could be so much better. And I want to promise you, while I'm not perfect, today my prayer life's a lot better. He said, you could, you could study better. You could think better. You could think deeper. You could be a part of seeing more people come. And uh, I just praise God for that. And I want to tell you right now, if you're in a time of struggle, I'm not saying to say, oh, okay, it's easy. I'm saying, thank you, God, it's not. Thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you for the things that are going to happen. And begin to put yourself in his hands more than ever. And if you right now are not in an intimate, close relationship with him, I want to encourage you today, today, would you, would you be bold enough to, to come to a God who's very often dangerous and say, Lord, I want to live the life that you have for me that you want it to be. I want everything you've got, and here I am. Take me and draw me close. And I want you to know, you need to know this, every one of us, he has a plan for your life. Before you were ever born, he had things you wanted you to experience, destinies he wants you to fulfill, amazing moments he wants you to experience, battles he wants you to win. And the question today is, can you say you're living that life with him? And if not, all you need to do is, is you need to, to, to pledge to him, I'm yours. And in a moment, I'll lead a prayer where you can, right where you're sitting, say that pledge to him. And it's a prayer, and I'll pray and stop and let you think about it, and, and you pray it with me. Today, if, if you for some reason aren't close to God, maybe you've been so disappointed by circumstances, maybe you thought, God, if I'm going through this, do you love me? And, and hopefully now the light's gone and you're like, no, it's because he loves you. 
And, and maybe it's something that was done that wasn't God's will, but he's going to take it and make it incredible. But right now, if you aren't close to him and you used to be, I also want to ask you to recommit yourself to him. Let's pray together. Father, I love living life with you. And God, as I look back over the hard times, it's, it's fun to talk about them. Those tough days in our marriage now, we laugh about more than ever. At the time, it didn't seem good, but now I look at what it did in our character, our life, and how it changed us, and I wouldn't trade it. Lord, some of the tough things that, that I know I've been through in my life, and there have been some ones that just literally knocked me to my knees. And I thank you for being on my knees before you and with you. And for how you created amazing things from every single one of those. So I've seen that in the past. I want to trust you with today and tomorrow. And I pray that all of us would. And right now, God, I want to ask for your Holy Spirit, please, to come and anoint this building. And Lord, for your spirit to move in a powerful way. And I pray that you would touch anybody here who needs to give their life to you or they need to recommit their life to you. For anyone, Lord, right now that's not close to you, I pray that you would cause your spirit to touch them and stir up on them and stir within them. And they would know this is their moment to surrender themselves completely to you and to get ready to live a life that's amazing. For those who need forgiveness, Lord, may your forgiveness flow. For those, Lord, that need strength, may your strength now well up. For those, Lord, who need direction, may they cling to it now. But I pray, God, today people would commit themselves to you or recommit. I'm going to ask that we keep praying. And right now, if you're right with God, would you pray for people who need to make this time of commitment? They need to do it. But I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting, if you want to commit your life to Christ or recommit, I'm going to ask you to whisper a prayer with me. I want you to actually whisper it out. But I'd like to know if God is calling any of you to pray this prayer with me. And if he is, if God's calling you to pray this prayer with me, would you let me know you're going to do it right now, right where you're sitting, by lifting your hand in the air? Praise God. That is awesome. Praise the Lord. Praise God for you over here too. Praise the Lord. And for you and for you and for both of you here and right over there. Wow, praise God. And right up here, praise the Lord for you. And right there for you too. Praise God. Wow. And over here, praise the Lord. Yes. In the back section. Wow, all of you, this is so incredible. All of you, God's touching. This is an awesome time. And let's just pray this prayer together. Just whisper these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me of all my sins, to heal me of my hurts and pains, to make me alive and new, to bring me close to you, and to help me live an amazing life. So I say yes. I want all of this. And I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit. And help me be who you've always created me to be. And help me live the life you have for me to live. And I want to cling to you now. Be close to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.